Thank you, Tony and worship team. Good morning, Harvest. It's a blessing for sure to have Pastor Nyack with us, even though I've still not quite fully gotten over the time that he fed me the hottest pepper in all of India, and I nearly died. But uh, it is a joy to uh, be together with brothers and sisters um, from across the world, just to lift our sights and remind us that our God is a sovereign God over all the nations, amen? And our mission is every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, that there will be a remnant. And we can hope in that and partner and labor in that in way of the Great Commission. I had a chance to speak this week um, on Wednesday in uh, Louisville, Kentucky at a Lead Like Jesus conference where 74 nations were, were piped in. And I uh, appreciate those of you who prayed for that time. Uh, but I was overwhelmed just by the idea, uh, even as Pastor Nyack says, it's hard to go to a village among his people groups and not find a believer. Uh, 74 nations, um, that there is a movement of the gospel. And uh, it's easy to just lower our sights and um, get caught up in what God's doing in the midst of our little logistical schedule and not remember to align our lives around what God's doing on his kingdom agenda. And so uh, I was reminded of that Wednesday, excited to be a part of, chosen to be on mission with Christ, to co-mission with him, and praying that God would continually set our sights as a church on the mission of the gospel. Amen? We don't want to get caught up in, uh, in distracted with the things that are lesser than the very kingdom of God and his agenda that is playing out right before our very eyes. We're going to continue in our series in Ephesians this morning. We'll be in chapter 2. Uh, verses 19 through 22. If you're able to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word, I'd invite you to do so. Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, chapter 2, verse 19 through 22, the very words of God. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of God for the people of God, and the people of God said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Father, thank you so much that we can uh, gather as a people to sing your praises and to gather around your word to hear you speak into our lives truth. Lord, we need this. Uh, We need this particular word as a local expression of your body. We need to be exhorted, challenged, possibly rebuked by this word. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would go to work in my heart and our hearts, that your word would go forth and would not return void. That's a promise, so we'll claim that one now. And God, I pray that even as I speak, I would decrease, I must, and you must increase, Lord Jesus. It's in your name I pray, amen. So our text this week... Uh, is one that that, that builds off uh, what Ronnie preached on last week and uh, and, and even uh, what Jamie preached on the week before and what I preached on the week before. So as long as you remember the last three weeks, you're good, okay? But And the reason is we start in verse 19 with a so then. Y'all see that? And so it's kind of an awkward entry point uh, without doing a little bit of uh, recapping and, and bringing some context in. There, there's going to be an important, well, a, a critical point made uh, by Paul to the church in Ephesus, and it's a critical point for us today, I promise. But to really get the full weight of his point, I, I do want to see where does this so then, what, what are we referring to? 
In other words, so then is kind of like a because of. Well, because of what? So then in light of what? Well, what was just taught here last week and what Paul has just built on is really verse 11 through 18 where he starts with a therefore, okay? So it's not gonna help us that much. But, but I do wanna at least grab that and then we'll just keep backing up and eventually we'll start the whole thing all over. But Paul says in verse 11, therefore, and he's talking about in light of verses one through 10 of chapter two, which is the gospel. Therefore, in light of the fact that you were dead, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, you were dead, not just in need of an assist, trying hard, need a little boost, like when my kids are trying to dunk and they can't quite reach and I boost them over the rim. It's salvation is not that. Salvation is dead in transgressions and sins, following the prince of this world who is Satan, doing his will because your will is in bondage to sin and evil. It's your nature, it's your will, and it's his will until God interrupts and intervenes and convicts you uh, of your sin, your helplessness, your need for Christ, awakens you to the truth of Jesus, the salvation of uh, sin found in his blood alone. I went to the Dude Perfect show last night. Anybody go there? There had to be more than four of you guys. The place was packed. Uh, I went there. My boys are really into Dude Perfect. If you have no idea who they are, don't worry about it. Uh, but a group of five guys that just started with a viral video 12 years ago of a trick shot, and now they've got an entire brand of, uh, of comedy and competition and, 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 and just, I don't even know what the brand is, but it's huge. And, uh, but they're five Christians. And at the end of the night, uh, one of the guys, his name is Ty, he said, hey, if you wanna leave, you can, but I invite you to stick around. I'm gonna tell you what's most important to me, my story, we stuck around. And he said, uh, hey, you know what's ironic about our name, Dude Perfect, is that there's, there's actually nothing perfect about us. And uh, we're guys that struggle with sin, and we struggle with wrongdoing, and, and our thought, motive, and deed. Like, we're, at the end of the day, we're broken, wretched people. But we have a perfect Savior who gave a perfect sacrifice. The righteous requirement of the law, that no human can stand up before God, is innocent. We're guilty, we're condemned. It says all have sinned, none are righteous, not even one. The wages of sin are death. And so Christ, who has a righteousness according to the law, pays the price, the wages of our sin, for those who have no righteousness according to the law. So Romans 3 says that we have a salvation now, or righteousness that's apart from the law, that comes through the perfect sacrifice of Christ, who shed his blood for us. That we put all of our hope in him, our confidence is in him, our trust is in him. To be saved is literally to die to ourself and take up our cross and follow him. It's to have his life alive in us. E- even now, I'm 30 years as a Christian. I just did the math on that, that's unbelievable. 30 years as a Christian this year. Even now, I'm still getting my mind around the fact that I'm not gonna be saved one day, that I've been saved now, that I'm living a resurrected life where Christ is alive in me. I no longer live, but Christ is alive in me. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, he's alive in me. Now, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is drilling down deep to help us understand that he has saved us. He has rescued us. He has literally opened our eyes to Christ, he's illumined us to the truth of the gospel. He's transferred us from the domain of darkness and bondage to the will of Satan to the kingdom of his beloved son. 
This is a work that God has done, that we are left in awe of. We can't believe the mercy of God. We can't believe the salvation of God. We often wonder, why me? That's a, that's a right posture to, to think, oh yeah, well I, can, I understand why it's me. I was, doing, I was pretty good. Immediately goes back to first person understanding of salvation, which is wrong. It immediately puts the glory back in my corner, which is the antithesis of the true nature of the gospel. Uh, I saw a video this week that uh, Ronnie actually sent that was of uh, his, one of his favorite preachers, Alistair Begg. You may have sent it to some of you who was, who was preaching on the nature of uh, salvation. And um, he, he, he told a story that was funny, but it was powerful. He said, can you imagine when the, um, the thief on the cross got to heaven's gates? And can you imagine he gets there and... Uh, the angel says, I mean, again, again, just grabbing in context, the thief on the cross, he had very little understanding of anything of spiritual nature. It's, it's not like he understood the scriptures. It's not like he understood the church. It's not like he had a good education in theology proper. I mean, he's being crucified for being a thief. But he looks on Jesus and God opens his eyes. He's mocking him in one moment, but then God convicts him. God opens his eyes, God saves him, and he says, remember me, and Jesus says, today you'll be in paradise. Gets to heaven's gates, and, and one of the angels, this is obviously hypothetical, angel says, now, um, why are you here? And he goes, uh, I don't know. And he says, well, well what, on what merit do you deserve us letting you in? Like, why do we let you in? I don't know. And he says, well, uh, hold on a minute, let me, let me get my supervisor. <laughs> he goes and gets an angel of higher authority to come, and it's, maybe it's Gabriel that shows up and says, look, uh, can you give me an explanation of justification by faith? And the guy says, of what? He goes, do you, uh, at least let's go straight to the scriptures. Do you understand the, the doctrine of the scriptures and the inerrant authority of God in his word? And the guy says, What? And the angel, a little bit exasperated, says, well, why are you here? And he says, the man on the middle cross said I could be. That's it. He hoped in the word of God through Christ. He trusted Christ. He didn't understand anything else. Now, he's hopefully not the norm, but he's the norm in what it means to be saved apart from any work of your own. He's the quintessential picture of that. Every work of his entire life led him to a crucifixion but he trusted on Jesus. And we'll be hanging out with him for all of eternity. Uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 says, you are saved because of Christ, because of who he is and what he's done and a divine act of mercy on your behalf. And then Paul says, the verse 11, therefore, because of that, he says, look, there's always been a dividing wall. There's always been the people of God who were the Jews. They were the covenant people of God in the Old Testament. There's now a new covenant people. We know this. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. Jeremiah towards what would be true of today, a people that would have the law of God written on their hearts that would be Jew and Gentile. But this is when the transition from old to new covenant is happening. This is when Christ ushers in the new covenant. And he says, there's been a divide. I love what Ronnie said last week. This was written to the Gentiles. This was a, a, a Gentile church. This is a, a church full of Greek believers in Ephesus. 
but it's written for the Jews because they were the ones struggling with the understanding that Gentiles could now be a part of the family of God and the covenants of God could be theirs in Christ. They're struggling with that. And he's saying, therefore, remembering that your salvation is on nothing you earned or did, the grand culmination of your efforts were that you were lost and condemned. But God, but God, it's true for you Jew, it's true for you Gentile. God did something, he saved you. And therefore, remember that you, he's talking to these Gentiles, you were once separated from Christ and alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of the promise. You had no hope and you were without God in this world. That's all true. But now in Christ Jesus, you once were far off, that's the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ it says, he, uh, verse 14, he himself is our peace. The blood of Christ is a peace treaty. But listen to what Paul's saying in 11 through 18 and ultimately through 22. That this peace treaty goes two ways. It's a peace treaty between you and God. You are, if you are outside of salvation by grace through faith, the Bible does not mince words. God does not mince words. It says you're an enemy of God. We like to talk about human beings in, in, in uh, colloquial speak in our culture as all being children of God. Well, that's not really true. We're all image bearers of God, but we're children of the devil, enemies of God, unless we are saved, which only happens by the blood of Christ. So the blood of Christ is a peace treaty between us and God. It, uh, it, it literally makes peace. We are reconciled to God by the blood of Christ. But not merely is there this uh, horizontal dividing wall that's shattered where we are now in right relationship vertically with God, there's a vertical dividing wall between Jew and Gentile that's shattered that we are now one in Christ. Literally in the temple, there was a dividing wall uh, between the, there was the, the, the general large temple courts where they were called the Gentile courts. Anyone could come, but you could only come so close unless you were a Jew. And there was literally a dividing wall. And in all three languages it was of the, spoken in the day, it was listed, should a Gentile pass this point, they do so punishable by death. There was a wall of hostility between the people of God and everyone else. They were on the inside. They were of the circumcision. Everyone else was far away. The, Jewish, uh, the Jews were taught in their day that uh, to be Gentile was to be worse than a dog. Uh, women were second-class citizens, but to be Gentiles, uh, Jewish men prayed every day. Thank you, God, for not making me a Gentile. The Gentiles were to fuel the fires of hell. That was their understanding. Great self-righteousness in that. Well, it says he himself brought down the dividing wall of hostility. Understand how deep that hostility ran, and on what basis were they hostile? Well, it was ethnic. It was to be Jew or not to be Jew. So it was a racial hostility. And it wasn't merely a racial hostility, it was a national hostility, to be Jewish or not. The division, the hostility was really built on ethnic and racial lines. And then it was cultural, to be circumcised or not, to worship the way we worship or not. This, this by the way, you might even as I'm speaking be thinking, man, that's kinda like today. We have a lot of racial tension, we have national tension, we have cultural tension. We have it in this city. 
Okay, this is why I'm backing up to go forward because this is ultimately the punch that our text is gonna land. Is that the gospel destroys the dividing walls of hostility that exists not merely between us and God, but between us and one another. Now, Ronnie talked a lot last week about this passage in nature of his main point, which my family took from this and have had great discussions, was the counterintuitive nature of salvation. That we rebelled against God and he didn't do what a human would do, would be to uh, reap uh, justice, to, to, uh, uh, to, to rain down judgment on us. He sent his only begotten son to die in our place and for our sin. That's not a human thought, it was a divine thought. We don't have thoughts like that, God does. If we have any thoughts like that, they're of God and from God. That's what he did. And that was to save not only the Jew, but the Gentile. And where our text goes a little further this morning is to take that same thought and looks horizontally and says, now there's a, a difference in how we treat one another based on who Christ is and what he has done for us. Not merely a difference in how we think about God and how we treat God, but how we think about others and how we treat others because of who we are in Christ. It says that Christ made us both one. He broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And it says he reconciles us both to God in one body through the cross, killing the hostility. So he keeps talking about how there is to be no hostility anymore between Jew and Gentile, the prevalent divide of their day. And so it's not just to destroy the disunity exists, that exists. He says he's building one new man, one new body. It is to build a unified body of Jew and Gentile. Now, this is not merely our problem today. This was their problem in the first century just as well. If you read through the first 15 chapters of the book of Acts, you're gonna see that this theme of hostility that exists along racial lines, ethnic, national lines, and cultural lines is the main problem in the early church. It's the problem God is having to deal with in the flesh of even his people, even those who were saved by grace through faith and nothing of their own, even those who have nothing to boast in but Christ. Now, I've talked about the Jews' hatred of the, of the Gentile, disdain of them. If it's possible to hate a group even worse than them, it was the Samaritans. Without giving you the entire history, uh, 722 BC, when the Assyrians came in and conquered the northern territory of Israel, and they took off uh, to captivity uh, men in that area, uh, those that were left in the northern kingdom not only intermarried with the Assyrians, but embraced their worship of foreign gods. So the Jews in the south, in the southern kingdom of Judah, they looked upon them Samaritans, the, the, the uh, offspring of the Jew, the covenant people of God, and these pagans. And they said, this is the worst imaginable thing to not only intermarry, but interworship with pagans. And so they looked at them as, 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 uh, as half-breeds and as worse than pagans because of their compromise. So the Jew-Samaritan compromise kept growing deeper and deeper until you see Jesus talking with the woman of the well. And she says, hey, why are you even talking to me? You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. We don't even speak. The worst thing the Pharisees could think to call Jesus was a demon-possessed Samaritan. That was the worst cut down they had in their day. So it was all awful to be a Gentile, but worse than that was a Samaritan. So, book of Acts, early church, we send Philip to Samaria. And guess what happens? The gospel goes forth and many Samaritans believe in Christ. The Jews don't know what to do with this. 
Those are our mortal enemies. We hate them. They've compromised in every way. How can they be a part of the fold? And then uh, chapter 10, Peter has a vision. And the vision is of being able to eat clean and unclean meats. And at the same time he has a vision, three men show up at his door and say, hey, we were sent here to get you. He's going, what's going on? He goes to a man named Cornelius, who's a Gentile. And Cornelius says, I had a dream to go get you. Peter says, I had a dream about being able to eat uh, meats that were uh, foreign to me that were uh, unclean. And God's saying, get up, kill and eat. All I know is to share with you the gospel. And he shares in Cornelius and his household believe. And the Jews are starting to stir. They're going, wait a minute. Wait a minute here. We're the people of God. That's our savior. That, that's our salvation. This, these are the people that are to fuel the fires of hell. These are the people that are worse than unbelievers. So they got to have a council in Acts 15. And the council begins with saying, okay, if these people are going to be let into our covenants, if they're going to be considered as family among us, then Surely they have to be circumcised, right? They gotta become like us, they gotta look like us, they gotta worship like us, they gotta be like us. And Peter stands up and gives this powerful sermon net there in Acts chapter 15 where he says, no, they are like us. They're sinners, bringing nothing to the table, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that's enough. We should simply let them know they should not uh, 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 eat any food that's sacrificed to idols and avoid sexual immorality. In other words, idolatry and sexual immorality. I mean, guys, Peter could stand here right now and preach this sermonette to this body. It'd be just as relevant right now as it was then. The entire first half of the book of Acts is, tr is, is dealing with this problem. That we have this seed of self-righteousness in us, even after being saved, that says anyone that's going to be saved needs to look like me and think like me and act like me and vote like me and be like me. And there's just this self-righteousness that's the old man that dies hard. And the gospel says the dividing wall between you and God has been rendered dead through the blood of Christ. It's been destroyed. And the dividing wall between you and every other people group, every other person within the body of Christ that you might have had a prejudice or a preference that's different or against is rendered dead. Jesus put to death everything that divides believers. You hear me, Harvest? Everything that divides you and a believer who doesn't look like you, think like you, raised like you, who's a different race than you, who's a different nationality than you, who voted differently than you in the last election, uh, who's dealt with these social justice waves in our country, who's thought differently, who's posted something differently than what you thought was right to be posted on a social media account. Jesus came to put, together, to put to death the hostility between you and God and you and any one of the brethren. Now, this sounds like, I don't know, maybe you could hear it and go in one ear and out the other. But the text this week, the so then, is Paul pressing deeper. 
He's saying, look, in 18, our runway immediately in for through him, we both have access to one spirit in the Father. Anyone in Christ has the same Holy Spirit alive in us, the same access to God the Father, the living sovereign God, through the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. What makes you any better than any other believer? What gives you right to boast in anything other than Christ? So then, 19, okay, that was kind of a long runway. But Wes did say I preached for two hours, so I feel great freedom. Got like an hour and 40 minutes left. I'm just teasing. I don't have that much to add, honestly. Four verses, but he brings home something that has bothered me pastorally for the last 18 months. And I think it bothered Paul, and it bothered Peter, and it bothered Jesus. So then, it's in light of this, you guys with me? In light of the gospel, in light of the fact that there's vertical reconciliation and horizontal reconciliation, so then, you, again, talking to the Gentile, but for the sake of the Jew, you Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens. By the way, I understand that Peter would write that we are aliens and sojourners in this world, amen? We're in this world, not of this world, amen? Hey, so we are sojourners, we're just passing through. We are strangers to those who are, quote, at home in this world. Where is our citizenship, Harvest? It's heaven. Philippians three, citizens of heaven. But he says this, in the family of God, you're no longer a stranger. I don't care where you come from, I don't care what you look like. I don't care your socioeconomic status, I don't care your culture of origin or its practices. So much as we rid ourselves of idolatry and immorality, in other words, we are a people surrendered to God. By the compulsion of the gospel, we are compelled to lay our lives down and follow Christ. That's what binds us together, who he is, what he's done for us, and the mission before us, amen? Is there any stronger bond than what we have in Christ with another Christian? It's the reason that I went to India. I like Pastor Nyack. He's a sweet man, he's a dear man. But I didn't go there just because I like him so much. I went there because of the bond we have in Christ and the mission before us, and I was compelled. And when I stepped off that plane and he and his family were there to greet me, they put uh, lays around our neck. They had music and celebration. We were treated, not as the strangers that we were to those people, from the moment we stepped off the plane among the Banjara Christians, we were treated as family. There's almost an awkwardness, they didn't even know us. I deeply grieved the passing of uh, Mauricio, Pastor Mauricio from El Salvador in the last two weeks. Uh, I only knew Mauricio over the years through um, ministering with him in El Salvador and ministering with him here in America. But the same thing, when I was there among a people I didn't know where I should have felt like a stranger or alien, I was treated like a brother. I was treated like family. I was treated better or m more with uh, more uh, loving uh, pursuit there than oftentimes among my own blood relatives here, not all of whom are in Christ. The familial intimacy and the love and, uh, and the commonality that just disintegrates every other division that we might have. 
It was palpable, it was tangible, it was real. We were family. So when he died, when I got the text that says Mauricio's with the Lord, I wept. He's a brother. Doesn't look like me. Culture's far different than mine. Nationality's different. We don't share a national patriotism that I might share with most of you. Uh, we, don't, we don't have any, uh, back our genealogies up, there's gonna be no commonalities. And I grieve the loss of a brother. Okay, there's a weightiness to what we're meant to feel towards our family. Paul says, you're no longer strangers and aliens here in the household of God. You understand me? I don't care who you were, I don't care where you're from. Listen, gang, the stuff we're dividing over right now is petty. It's petty. It's silly. It does damage to the name of Christ. It does damage to the credibility of the gospel. Jesus died that we would no longer be hostile towards one another. Paul says, you're no longer a stranger. You're no longer aliens. You're fellow citizens. Look what he says here, with the saints. Do you know what the saints are? That's not just the guy on your right or left, though it includes them if they're believers. That's Paul, that's me, that's Paul. That's Peter, that's Mary, that's Thomas. Like, first century, you're a citizen of the same country that they're a citizen of. You know what the country is? It's the celestial city. It's heaven. You guys are citizens together. You do have a patriotism that runs eternally deep. It's heaven. It's the kingdom of God. And he says, you're members of the household of God. Do you know that that you got a seat at the table of the household of God? Romans 8 says, your spirit cries, Abba, Father that you are uh, a co-heir with Jesus Christ. He's the only begotten son, and then we are all co-heirs. We're sons and daughters of God through his blood. We all have a seat at the table of God. Not only are you fellow citizens, not only are you a family, he says you're a temple in verse 20. You're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. Do you know what a cornerstone is? The first stone laid. It had to be a perfect right angle because this wall of the building and this wall of the building are both, their their structural integrity depends on the rightness of the cornerstone. If the cornerstone is not perfect, your building is flawed. Our cornerstone is Christ. The only one that could be laid perfectly righteous. He's the corner. And you know how you built the temple? You had to go down to the stone quarry. You had to take stones. And every one was carved into the likeness of the corner. And if you had one stone that was too big, you get one inflated Christian, you're going to screw up the whole body. Each one is to be like the corner. We are being conformed into the image of the Son by the Holy Spirit. Praise be to God. 
and we're built on the foundation, cornerstone Christ, foundation of the apostles, the prophets, the truth of the Old and New Testament, the mystery of God, the gospel, the Jew and the Gentile, and then there's a building being formed. Guess what you and I are? Stones. Stones. What makes your stone more, more valuable than any other stone? Nothing. Nothing. We're merely those made in likeness of the chief cornerstone. For a reason, look here. In whom the whole structure, verse 21, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Quickly, just a couple things. In that context, in that day, the temple, uh, the temple of Artemis, it, matter of fact, one of the seven wonders of the world. I, I, I can't get my mind around some of the things I've read about the temple of Artemis, but it was on uh, uh, 110 miles of property. That's just massive. It, was, uh, it had these stone columns that went around it, and uh, each, column, each column was 65 feet tall and six feet wide, each column. Each column took 120 years of manual labor to build. I don't quite understand that, other than this was a generational project to build the seventh wonder of the world. And the temple, which was the looming massive structure in Ephesus, in their day it was the center of pagan worship through sexual immorality for all of Asia Minor. It was the center. Artemis was the god of fertility and war, sex and violence. And people from all over Asia came to worship by partaking in sexual immorality at the temple of Artemis, which was so massive and filled with thousands of temple prostitutes. And this was the looming structure. Anywhere you were in all of Ephesus, you merely had to look over one shoulder and you saw the temple Artemis, seven, one of the seven wonders of the world. And there's this little house church of believers getting this letter. And Paul says, you are to be a holy temple in the Lord. The temple in that day was known for three things explicitly. It was where anyone that was accused, falsely accused and rendered guilty, their last place of hope was they would go to the temple to find refuge. And secondly, anyone that was uh, uh, impoverished, uh, it, it was a place of uh, social justice. Anyone that was impoverished, anyone that was beaten down, anyone that was uh, going hungry, they would go to the temple to be fed and to be clothed. And finally, if you wanted to worship Again, the goddess Artemis, which is no real god, of course, you would go there to experience her power. Paul says, listen to me carefully, Harvest. He's not talking merely about a structure. He says, you little Ephesians, they're going, how are we supposed to reach this, this sick city full of sexual immorality and sin of every kind? He says, God's growing you into the temple. You'll be the place where amidst the division and amidst the accusations and amidst everything flying, people can find refuge. You'll be the place where the impoverished and the hungry and the hurting know compassion. And you'll be the place where those who want to know and experience God find him and experience him. Now, listen to me real carefully. He goes from 21, which is just talking about you, the church in general, are to be this holy temple, this place of humility, this place governed by the law of love, this place of compassion. And then he talks in 22 and he says, in him you also, 
The only way that makes any sense is if 20 and 21 were about the universal body of Christ, all Christians everywhere, and 22 is about you specifically, you local assembly in Ephesus. You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And this is why I think there is such profound application for us at Harvest. Paul's saying, hey, there's something different about the way the church, big C, universal body, there's a familial love between us that's greater than any other bond you've ever had. You know, I played football in high school. I was average, but I played on the team. I remember I had some of my best friends. And then I had other guys that I just didn't really hang out with. And then there were other guys that I purposely didn't hang out with, I didn't like them. And yet, during that hour and a half each day after school and during those couple hours on Friday nights, when we put on that same helmet, we laid aside our differences and we were together for a cause that was bigger than our differences. Play college baseball very briefly, one semester. First thing I found out, I was on a team with Aaron Deal from New York, Matt Cata from Ohio, and Mark Pryor from California, Kyle Flubacher from Chicago. And I couldn't find a single guy that had the same cultural upbringing as me, that talked anything like me. I was made fun of for every preference I had, from the music I listened to, to the clothes I wore, to how my hair looked. And it was all fun and games, but when we put the uniform on and we went out on the field, all that disintegrated. Common bond, common mission. These are, these are lightweight bonds. Probably the, the strongest human bond would be that of military that you would, for the sake of uh, defending this nation against foreign threat, that you would sign up to be willing to lay your life down. The commitment you've made is one that could cost your life. The cause is to protect your country. Probably doesn't get any stronger in our human experience than that, except for one bond. There's one bond that we lay down our life and the cause is not temporal. It's not to protect a country that won't always be here. It is for the eternal welfare of souls. And that's the church. I was asking my wife, we were talking this morning, I said, I wish I could illustrate this properly. You know what she said? I was asking her to help me think of a good illustration. She goes, you can't, because there's nothing like the church. There is no other bond. I could compare this to every lesser bond and it would you know, kind of make the point, but cheapen, cheapen the blood of Christ. There is no other bond stronger than what we have. There is no other mission greater than what we have. There's nothing like the church. And let me tell you what Jesus wrote or prayed, I'm sorry, in John 17. This is the very words of Jesus and his high priestly prayer. I just want you to listen. You might even want to close your eyes and listen. Here's what Jesus says about the church. He says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. This is about his disciples and those disciples that would come. That's you and I. I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given to me, that they may be one, even as we are one. That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. The world's hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but I ask that you keep them from the evil one, Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Consecrate them, sanctify them in truth. I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that's us, that they may all be one, 
just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, so that the world may know that you have sent me. Open your eyes and look at me. Jesus praying, you know, you get to know at the heart of a man when he prays. He's praying and he's saying the same thing over and over. God, those, these, these apostles, they gotta be one. The power of their testimony is in their oneness. That they can't, that Satan would love to deceive them. If he can't deceive them, he wants to divide them because in division, they'll destroy themselves. They gotta be one. And then those who come to me through the word of their testimony, they gotta be one. They gotta be one so that the world knows that you sent me. Wow, did you hear this? And then he just says it again. Make them one, Father. They gotta be one as we, Father, Son, are one. So the world knows that you, Father, sent me the Son. Uh, I told you I've just had pastoral angst about this, and I have. That's, that's the exegesis of the text, that in Christ we're one. That there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free man, male or female, that we're one. And uh, that's nothing you guys haven't heard, right? The, the, the ground is level at the cross. That's what we talked about three weeks ago. God's done something counterintuitive when he saved me and you just as much as anybody. We have nothing to boast in Christ, as we talked about last week. But can I tell you something? This text saddened me this week. I thought about how the entire validity and authenticity of the gospel is wrapped up in the oneness of the church. And our ability to be a dwelling place for God, this holy temple built on the cornerstone of Christ. That literally in Ephesus, if you had walked into a, a house church and it was all Samaritan believers, you would have said, that makes sense. They have everything in common, makes sense. If you had walked into a house church of Jewish believers, you would have said, that makes sense. And if you had walked into a, uh, maybe it was Trophimus's home, who Paul got put in jail for having him in the inner uh, walls of the, past the divine wall of the temple. If you walked into his home and it was Greek believers, that makes sense. But if you had walked into a house church and there was Jews and Gentiles and Samaritans and men and women and rich and poor, that would not have made sense. And you as an onlooker would have said, what's going on? Because out there in the world, y'all hate each other. You're prejudiced against one another. You have every possible disagreement on every possible preference. And yet you act like family. And all they get to do, they get to open their mouth and they get to tell about our peace is the blood of Christ. He destroyed the hostility. And you don't have to say anything else because they see it. They say it must be true because this is uncommon. This is unnatural. This is supernatural. It's been such a long, hard 18 months 
not because of the circumstances. I'm not talking about because of the pandemic and because of the election and because of the social justice movements. I'm talking about because of the way we've treated each other around these things. And I'm not merely talking about the big C church. I'm talking about harvest. There's a lot of ways in which I feel in like in ways I feel like a failure. But this one will be the most. That somehow the cultural divisiveness of the last 18 months, who you voted for, of how you thought about Black Lives Matter, of how you think about the medical recommendations for masking or vaccines, that somehow those things which are tearing our community apart would tear us apart. That's not supposed to happen. That's not supposed to be able to happen. We're not supposed to slander one another. We're not supposed to gossip about one another. We're not supposed to treat one another with a lack of empathy or compassion or understanding. We're not supposed to not listen to one another. We're not supposed to be not praying for one another. There's meant to be something that glues us together so powerfully that those things that tear everyone else apart, it can't tear us apart. My job, our job as shepherds of this church or to protect Jesus' heart, which is that you must be one. It's that the gospel is supposed to propel us through. We're in this world, but we're not of it. We're supposed to be propelled through the divisiveness with a supernatural unity, governed by love. We're supposed to be the place where people come for refuge, that people come when they're hurting, when they're divided and don't know how to think, and they see radical, self-sacrificial, preference laid down, love. And they say, I don't understand this. We say, Christ, the blood of Christ. The church has so little voice right now. So little voice in this community and the gospel loses credibility because we elevate our preference. We give rise to our prejudice. And Jesus prayed Let him be one. He died not just to reconcile you to God, but to bind you together as a body and a family and a temple where the world might find refuge in hope. Satan has 
wreaked havoc on the church and we have not been immune in these last 18 months. There are literally hundreds of members of our body that we're presently trying to figure out where they are, where they've gone. And testimony after testimony is, is generally an offense. They've been offended by something I said, by something we said, by something one of you said. There's been offense, there's been bitterness, that has been followed by slander and division. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens with the saints. You're members of the household of God. You're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God, I feel like we need to, I, we need to repent of our pettiness, We need to repent of the division. It's not been a doctrinal division here, Lord. It's not been a moral division. It's not been the the right guarding against wolves in sheep's clothing. It's, It's been pettiness. It's been fleshly frustrations that we have not rightly reckoned before you that we have not sought out our brother or our sister as we're told to do and seek peace, that we have not buried the ways that we've been offended, we have not forgiven from our heart, and we've not received forgiveness from others. We've not remained one in the bonds of the gospel, and that was your heartbeat. That was your prayer. God, where any man or any woman sits in this room, unreconciled to one another, May your Holy Spirit go to work bringing us to repentance, bringing us to live out the gospel, pushing us towards a oneness that the gospel witness here would not be compromised because of fleshly division. The the community in Memphis may see in us also what it looks like to be the temple of God built on the cornerstone of Christ. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.